This is episode number 633 with Don Song, professor at Berkeley and co-founder of Oasis Labs. This episode is brought to you by Iterative, your mission control center for machine learning. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got a landmark episode for you today, which was filmed live on the keynote stage of the Open Data Science Conference West in San Francisco, more commonly called ODSC West, and one of the biggest data science conferences in the world. Our exceptional guest for this landmark episode is Professor Don Song, a trailblazing Berkeley professor and tech entrepreneur who wins award after award for her work on responsible decentralized intelligence, including a MacArthur Fellowship, which is commonly referred to as the Genius Grant. Today's episode is a deep technical one that will appeal primarily to practitioners like data scientists, but it does have takeaway points that will allow any interested learner to become abreast of the massive emerging potential of decentralized intelligence. In this episode, Professor Song details what decentralized intelligence is and how it relates machine learning, particularly deep learning, to other emerging technologies like the blockchain, differential privacy, federated learning, and homomorphic encryption. She talks about what a responsible data economy would look like with specific real-world examples from her applications of her research to industry. And she provides us with specific resources that she has developed to allow data scientists and software developers to easily develop and deploy privacy-preserving machine learning applications. All right, you ready for this deeply immersive live filmed episode? Let's go. All right, welcome to Super Data Science live on stage at the Open Data Science Conference West, ODSC West in San Francisco. Let's uh, get a crowd cheer. Uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm your host, John Crone, and I'm joined today by a very distinguished guest. We have Professor Dawn Song. She leads trailblazing research at the intersection of deep learning and decentralized systems like the blockchain. She's been a professor in computer science uh, uh, in the computer science division of UC Berkeley for 15 years, which, as many of you know, is a number one university in the US overall, and also number one for the computer science grad program and for the blockchain. So it seems like you're in the right place for that. Maybe you're even responsible for that. Um, at Berkeley, Professor Song co-directs a new campus-wide blockchain and Web3 center called the Center for Decentralized Intelligence. And she's part of the illustrious Berkeley AI Research Lab, BEAR. Um, she's authored over 300 papers, leading to over 80,000 citations. She's won countless awards, including the Genius Grant, the MacArthur Fellowship, and she's separately the founder of Oasis Labs, a data privacy startup that's raised over $45 million in uh, capital. So let's start, Don, uh, with the new Center for Decentralized Intelligence that you co-direct. Tell us more about the center and why it's called uh, a Center for Decentralized Intelligence. Maybe tell us what decentralized intelligence is. Uh, great. Uh, first, thanks all for having me here. Um, so yeah, so let me first uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the new uh, Berkeley campus-wide blockchain Web3 Center called uh, the Berkeley Center on Responsible Decentralized Intelligence. So the center really, um, the goal or the mission statement is to advance the science and technology of Web3 decentralization and decentralized intelligence and to make it universally accessible and to help uh, uh, to, to help promote a responsible digital economy. And the center is called uh, Responsible Decentralized Intelligence because the center actually focuses exactly on three key aspects. Responsible decentralized intelligence. <laughs> okay, let me, okay, let me talk a little bit more, uh, go into a little bit more detail for this. So first, responsible. As we, we all know, we are, um, 
the technology field is moving really fast and we are developing really exciting new technologies all the time. And then people, you know, have been talking about the the large foundation models, stable diffusion, and so on. Mm -hmm. And also in the Web3 world, we are developing really exciting new technologies as well, including blockchain, and people have heard a lot about NFTs, Metaverse, and, uh, and so on. And, right, and Meta even changed their name right, from Facebook to Meta. But however, we all know that these technologies, um, it, uh, it's just like what people say, right? Uh, with the great power, you also have great responsibilities. And right. uh, the technology can be misused, and we have seen already in the real world, these new technologies are being misused, both in terms of, um, for example, people are now uh, continue to worry about you know, fake uh, videos, uh, mm -hmm. fake news, mm -hmm. and so on. And in Web3 world, of course, there's a lot of scams, a lot, there's a lot of attacks. Uh, and so on. So, so one key, uh, especially as we move forward in this technology-driven, you know, advancement, is that we need to really make sure that the technology is being used in a responsible manner. And when I say responsible, there are many different aspects of being responsible, including uh, we wanted to be you know, privacy-preserving, we wanted to be regulatory compliant, and uh, it needs to be fair, uh, you know, has good ethics. And also, we want to enable um, leveling playing fields to right. enable innovation and uh, support diversity, inclusiveness. So there's a long list of the different aspects of being responsible. And uh, for the center, the number one goal for the center is to ensure that as we develop these new technologies, we need to develop new approaches and find new solutions to ensure that technologies are used in a responsible manner. Right. So that's why the center starts with responsible being the first uh, word. And the second one is decentralized. Mm -hmm. So in particular, the center focuses on, as I mentioned, decentralization technologies. The center aims to develop various um, you know, new advancements in decentralization technologies. And this is broadly ranging, including blockchain, Web3, decentralized data science, decentralized intelligence, um, because so the goal or the key of decentralization is that we can build systems without relying on central trust. We can build systems that actually uh, can support, uh, that actually can work in this decentralized manner, um, essentially built on decentralized trust, or sometimes also people call it trustless. And given that I also have done research in computer security for a really long time, yes. over two decades, yes. and we all know, right, uh, essentially I think building systems that doesn't rely on centralized trust actually is the most secure way of building secure systems. And hence, I, I do strongly believe that in the future, we are going to see more and more of these decentralization technologies, decentralized systems, because they are more robust, they are, you can build it in a more secure way. Right, so decentralized systems allow us to have more trust in the system um, and in a way that doesn't rely on kind of a central administrator? That's a really good point, yes. It allows you to have more assurance that the system will work, uh, even when there are various, uh, you know, either, uh, either attacks or uh, certain, um, you know, central parties, or certain parties are compromised and so on, because it relies on decentralized trust so that you can, in the end, uh, have more assurance. Uh, that uh, of the properties that you want to ensure or uh, enforce for the system. Nice. And so you mentioned that you think this is going to develop, that we're going to have more of this in the coming years. What's that going to look like maybe over the next five years and then over the coming decades? How do you see decentralized intelligence evolving? Right. That's a really good question. And also, yes, yeah, so the third key aspect is intelligence. Right. <laughs> and for intelligence, also, it's really broad ranging. I mean, here we are at the data science conference. It's uh, intelligence, of course, uh, part of it is coming from data, and ultimately it's about making decisions, how we can, as individuals and as groups and as society, how we can make the best decisions. And also we want to, uh, in the future, uh, we are going to see more autonomous uh, agents uh, sure. and yeah, with AI machine learning and so on. So the third uh, key aspect of the center is how we can enable these autonomous agents uh, and in actually in a decentralized manner as right. well. So for example, going uh, into the future, um, we are going to have more, for example, like self-driving car technologies and other. Already we have a lot of 
um, smart agents deployed at home and other places, and they are going to continue to be smarter and smarter, and they are going to make more and more automated decisions on behalf of their users and, uh, and companies and, and so on. So this is all in the broad realm of intelligence. And, right. and I do strongly believe that in the future, we are going into a decentralized intelligence future, where it's not like all this intelligence is controlled by centralized entities or the, the top you know, tech companies right. and so on. Uh, instead, I do strongly believe that first, we need to have decentralized intelligence. We need to have these different autonomous agents or uh, even personalized uh, assistants, virtual assistants and so on, that are more controlled by individual users uh, to essentially work on, on the best of their interests, working right. on the behalf of individuals. And also, ultimately, um, this decentralized intelligence, we hope, can help make much better decisions overall, make more fair decisions uh, that actually can take into account um, different entities and different users' interests, uh, and uh, uh, yes, and provide more privacy-preserving solutions as well. Nice, so our audience here, uh, many of them are probably expert with the intelligence part of responsible decentralized intelligence, and probably uh, have lots of ways that they are thinking of uh, creating more automation in our world. Um, so what can, what can our audience be doing? What can data scientists be doing to be, uh, to be, to be thinking about having decentralization in their applications? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. So yes, actually, as um, part of the research projects that uh, we have been doing uh, in the Berkeley RDI Center, uh, is that we're actually developing a new platform called Decentralized Data Science Platform. Perfect. <laughs> so, so I can, <laughs> yes, that actually, uh, the goal is to help uh, uh, data scientists and uh, uh, practitioners uh, in data science and machine learning in the real world to actually um, yeah, make it easier for them to develop decentralized data science applications uh, with strong security and privacy guarantees. So I can tell right a little bit yeah, of story dig into it. how this came about. Um, so uh, right, so this actually started from a recent partnership that uh, Oasis Labs uh, did yep. with uh, Meta. Yeah. Uh, so in this partnership, Oasis Labs worked together with Meta, developed um, new cutting-edge technologies uh, in privacy, uh, privacy-preserving AI machine learning area. So essentially. Um, in this uh, uh, partnership, uh, we developed uh, the cutting edge privacy technologies to help enable uh, AI model fairness assessment. So for example, uh, with Instagram and other uh, applications and Meta, uh, users get uh, recommendations served from right. AI machine learning models. Then of course, there's huge questions about whether these machine learning models are, uh, models are actually fair, whether they have certain biases and so on. And many of you may have seen a lot of discussions about how, uh, it's, how important it is to ensure that these machine learning models are fair. So then it's a really important question for Meta to figure out how to measure the, uh, this fairness for their uh, AI uh, models. Um, However, in order to do that, it requires them essentially, for, for this assessment, for this AI model fair, uh, fairness assessment, it requires uh, essentially um, knowing the uh, essentially certain sensitive attributes of users. For example, if you want to measure fairness across genders, then you need to know for a certain user whether uh, right, the gender of the user uh, and other, you know, for right. race and so on. Other and we don't necessarily attributes. want those attributes to be sent to Meta. Exactly. Right. Right. Because in that case, then Meta will be knowing too much about the user. Then right. there's privacy concerns. This episode is brought to you by Iterative, the open source company behind DVC, one of the most popular data and experiment versioning solutions out there. Iterative is on a mission to offer machine learning teams the best developer experience with solutions across model registry, experimentation, CI-CD training automation, and the first unstructured data catalog and query language built for machine learning. Find out more at www.iterative.ai. That's www.iterative.ai. 
so then in this case, um, so what, uh, what Meta does in collaboration with Oasis Labs and a few others is, so first, Instagram users can opt in into a survey uh, run by an independent survey operator. And then in that case, um, if the user opts into the survey, the user can fill in form, uh, a form providing information about their gender, race, and other types of sensitive attributes. Mm -hmm. And again, as we just discussed, it's of critical importance that this information is not shared directly with Meta. However, this information is crucial um, to compute this AI model uh, fairness right. uh, assessment. So then what we developed is uh, actually a combination of cutting-edge privacy technologies, including secure multi-party computation and homomorphic encryption, and also we use some zero-knowledge proof to ensure that the, the actual computation process uh, actually is, is proper. Right, right, right. Um, the, for example, the, the data is within a certain valid range uh, and so on. Um, and also differential privacy. So essentially these, what I just mentioned, these are actually the key components of modern uh, secure computing, privacy computing uh, technologies. Yeah. They, uh, they essentially, they are different technologies, but they all serve essentially the similar goals of ensuring uh, privacy protection for, for computation. Yeah, maybe we could dig into some of those a little bit more. What is uh, homomorphic encryption? Okay, that's a very good question. So homomorphic, uh, homomorphic encryption is a type of uh, encryption with a special type of uh, properties. It's actually really, it's really beautiful and very elegant. So basically the idea is normally with a normal encryption algorithm, you take a plain text X, you generate an encryption, uh, a cipher text of uh, E of X. E here just stands for encryption function, uh, E of X. And for normal encryption, then you get, uh, take a plain text X, you get E of X, and you take a plain text Y, you get E of Y. Um, but for normal, normal encryption, E of X and E of Y, in this case, they don't really have any particular uh, relations uh, and, and so on. So, but with homomorphic encryption, what happens is that it enables a certain relationship between uh, a certain mapping between the plain text and the cipher text in the sense that, for example, if I give you a plain text X and a cipher text E of X and plain text uh, of Y and E of Y, then in this case, we say it's additively homomorphic uh, if then now uh, I can compute uh, X plus Y, the encryption of X plus Y, which is E of X plus Y from E of X and E of Y. In this case, you can say it's uh, addition of uh, E of X and E of Y in the ciphertext domain. Okay, okay. So, so there's additive homomorphic encryption, and similarly, you can do multiplicative homomorphic encryption as well if the multipl uh, multipl multiplication relationship holds as well. And then, if the encryption algorithm satisfies both or enables both, then we call it homomorphic, fully homomorphic encryption. And then, so what does that enable for us? What does that kind of encryption? Uh, enable us relative to maybe other kinds of encryption? That's a, that's a great question. So with this capability, what you can see then is quite amazing. So basically, if I'm a user, I'm holding a plain text X, and then I can generate uh, encrypt the encrypted uh, <coughs> version, the ciphertext E of X, and then and if you are the server, you are the program, and then basically from my encrypted data, then you can do all sorts of computation. Oh, I see, I so, see. So then essentially you can compute on private data without seeing it. it. So you can enable com computation over encrypted data. So in the meta, to keep going with the meta example, you can have uh, private information that users have about sociodemographic characteristics. Mm -hmm. And that can stay private to them by using homomorphic encryption mm -hmm. that, um, so then just the, homo the homomorphically encrypted information gets sent to say meta, and they can perform some computation on it and then give some API response back uh, without ever having actually seen the private data. Yes, exactly. So, so in fact, uh, actually there has been research done in the space where uh, you can use this type of technology. Uh, so for example, if you want to evaluate over a machine learning model, but without letting the model to actually see the plain text of the input, you can send an encrypted uh, version of the, in, uh, of the input, and then by using homomorphic encryption, you can then basically evaluate the model, um, compute the inference on this encrypted data, and then in the end, send the encrypted inference results to the, the end user, and the end user can decrypt it and learn the, uh, the 
the actual inference result. Nice. So, so however, there is a catch to this. So that's why in our work with Meta, we have to combine all these different technologies. Is because fully homomorphic encryption uh, today, uh, it's it's a great technology. It's really beautiful, yeah. um, but it's still very expensive, uh. especially when you want to compute over a really large amount of data. I see. And for example, the example that I gave, I just gave, if you want to evaluate over. Uh, this uh, over encrypted data for this machine learning model, even just a small model, it can take you actually a very long time uh, to, to do this. So, um, so then in the, uh, the M model fairness assessment uh, work, our goal is to actually be able to do this computation over like millions of users. And uh, so we need a more practical solution, a more efficient solution. So that's why in this case, we also combine Secure multi-party computation. So with secure multi-party computation, in this case, you secure have multi-party computation. Multi-party computation. Right. So with fully homomorphic encryption, you are the server, and you there's only one entity who can do this computation over encrypted data. Mm -hmm. um, but however, with secure multi-party computation, oh. you do secret sharing across multiple parties, oh. so that uh, each party actually doesn't know the actual secrets, right. uh, but then altogether, in collaboration, they can uh, actually compute the right. results. And then it's, it's also a form of computation over encrypted data. But in this case, the trust model is different. So in the fully homomorphic encryption case, the trust model is that uh, we don't need to actually trust anyone. Because as a server, you don't actually see any data, like any uh, you only see ciphertext. Right. Um, but in the multi-party, uh, secure multi-party computation setting, we need to make the assumption, the trust assumption that uh, a certain, uh, uh, the attacker can only compromise uh, at most a certain threshold I see. of the parties in I the I see, group. I see. So an attacker could only, we can assume that attacker could only compromise certain parties in this multi-party system. And so uh, even if an attacker got access they wouldn't be able to combine the information together. If they so only have access to, at most, a certain threshold. Uh, right, right, right. A right. uh, number of servers. And um, so, uh, but the advantage uh, uh, of this approach is that the computation is cheaper than in certain cases, uh, than in certain settings, than fully homomorphic encryption. So, so that's why in our work with Manta, we actually combine these different technologies uh, to ensure that we have the most efficient solution, and uh, at the same time, have the better privacy protection as well. Nice. Another term that you mentioned earlier when talking about this project with Meta was the idea of differential privacy. Mm -hmm. So what is differential privacy, and how is the private SQL that you've developed uh, going to enable our audience here uh, to make uh, differential privacy SQL queries uh, more easily? OK, great. And uh, that's a great question. So when we talk about privacy computing, actually there are several different aspects uh, of privacy that we need to pay attention to. So the first, when I talk about fully homomorphic encryption and also secure multi-party computation, uh, and also there's another type of approach using uh, secure hardware, secure enclaves. So all these technologies, the goal is to protect the computation process from leaking sensitive information. So basically, the, the goal is to compute over encrypted data, but using different types of technologies. But another important aspect is, so for example, in this case, when somebody does a computation, um, the computation is based on the original sensitive input. So then we also need to ensure that the computation output doesn't leak sensitive information about the original input. So for example, some of our earlier work actually in, spa in this space as it relates to these large language models. So we show that so with these large language models, um, and also it's not just unique to large language models. So I'm just using that as an example. Sure. So in general, these models, they have huge uh, deep learning models, they have huge capacity. So there's another question whether they actually remember training data. Mm. And if they do, whether attackers oh, can actually extract the sensitive information from the original training data by just querying this model without even knowing the architecture right. or the parameters right. and these details of the model. So GPT-3 could theoretically, uh, if trained on private data, it could be memorizing those data 
And then you could potentially write queries that would allow you to extract private information from a large language model like that. Yes, absolutely. That's actually exactly what we did. So we did, <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, so we did a number of ex uh, experiments. Uh, um, so, so, one, um, so one interesting uh, experiment we did, it was a smaller language model where we trained a language model over um, a data set called the NRAM data set which naturally contains... The Enron data set. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Enron email data set. So okay. we don't have time to go into that, but it relates to the Enron, you know, the, the company, earlier... Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, there was, uh, yeah. there was a case. Um, so that's how that data was made available. Right. Um, and the Enron email data set naturally contained users' social security numbers and credit card numbers. So, so our, uh, our work shows that by... Uh, Training, when you train a language model over this uh, data set, an attacker, by devising some new attacks, it can, from just querying the language model without knowing the details of the language model, wow. can automatically extract wow. the, embed, the, uh, the social security numbers and credit card numbers that were in the original training data set. Wow. So this is an example uh, illustrating that as we train these large uh, models, it's really important to pay attention to um, uh, users' data privacy uh, as well. And, and later on, we extended the work uh, on larger language models as well, including GPT-2, and we are actually looking at some newer models, uh, uh, including um, the, the models in the category of stable diffusion and, and so on. So, so all these illustrating that as we compute over uh, user-sensitive data from the output, in this case, either it's the inference from a machine learning model, or um, it can be other analytics and so on. So for example, yeah. if we are computing analytics over users' data, then it's important that the computation output doesn't leak users' sensitive uh, input. So, so then what's the solution to this? So today, actually, the gold standard is um, to make your algorithms differentially private. So okay. differential privacy is a formal notion of privacy. At high level, what it says is, um, the reason it's called differential privacy is, uh, so for example, I have a data set, uh, and then I have a neighboring data set with your data added to it, with okay. your data point added to it. Yeah. And now, I want to compute uh, algorithm either training a machine learning model, or compute um, data analysis query over this data set, uh, actually over these two neighboring data sets. Okay. And then my algorithm is randomized. So, so the results of this randomized algorithm over the data set that will produce a probability distribution. Okay. So we say that my algorithm is differentially private if the probability distribution generated from an algorithm over these two neighboring data sets with or without your data points is indistinguishable to the attacker. Right, so if there's a difference between the data sets I guess that's where differential comes from. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but we can't tell a difference in these probability distributions right, computed from it. Right. Got so it. if that is the case, that means then your data is pretty safe uh, in the sense that as an attacker from just looking at the computation output, the attacker cannot tell whether you, right. your data is in the, has been used in the computation or not. And so intu intuitively speaking, provides uh, protection for your data. Oh, I see. What do you think about the Super Data Science Podcast? Every episode, I strive to create the best possible experience for you, and I'd love to hear how I'm doing at that. For a limited time, we have a survey up at superdatascience.com survey, where you can provide me with your invaluable feedback on what you enjoy most about the show and critically about what we could be doing differently, what I could be improving for you. The survey will only take a few minutes of your time, but it could have a big impact on how I shape the show for you for years to come. So now's your chance. The survey is available at superdatascience.com slash survey. That's superdatascience.com slash survey. So, so that's differential privacy. Yes. And in our work with uh, Meta, so we also use differential privacy to protect the computation output from leaking sensitive information about mm -hmm. users' input. And, um, yeah. and a couple of things I can add. Well, yeah, so I'd love that. to hear about the private SQL that's related right, to this. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. So actually, from these experience, uh, a couple of lessons that uh, we have learned that I actually led to uh, some of the uh, following work 
uh, that I can share is, so overall, all these technologies, they are great, and there have been lots and lots of papers, you know, maybe hundreds of papers or even more written on the topic. Um, but most of the papers, actually, mostly the great ideas have mainly been just sitting on the bookshelf. We, in the real world, in practice, we have seen very, very little real-world deployment of these great ideas, these great technologies. Okay. So, for example, defender privacy, I think right now has been... So, so Google has done some uh, special use case, and Apple has, Apple has done some special use case using differential privacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are the, um, the leaders in the space, in industry. And, for, and even in their case, it's still very specialized use cases. So overall, uh, I think more and more people are hearing and learning about differential privacy, for example, but most people have never really you know, seen how like, uh, it's deployed in the real world, right. uh, know actually how to use it. So, uh, so, at, uh, so this started as a research work in my uh, research group at Berkeley, and then, and then now Oasis Labs has been actually uh, productizing it, making it actually as a commercial product, is to really solve this problem, is to make this differential privacy technology, in particular in this case, enabling differentially private SQL, to make it really easy to deploy, and hence more uh, data scientists, more practi practitioners can benefit from this technology. So, uh, so this also was motivated actually earlier from uh, our collaboration with Uber, Actually, yes, a few years back. So basically, for Uber, for example, and also lots of companies have this, uh, the same issue, is that they have a lot of sensitive users' data. And then this data, of course, can be very useful to provide business insights to help them improve uh, their service for users and also <clears throat> figure out how to best uh, deploy their resources sure. to improve their overall business. And so ideally, they want to have a lot of uh, their other you know, uh, marketing departments or business departments and so on. So just in general, for their business operation, they want to have different analysts or even just uh, uh, you know, uh, people in these departments to be able to somehow use the data to gain business insights. But of right. course, given that this data is really sensitive, for example, Uber has, you know, every user's rise data, you know, from like your start and uh, location and time and so on. It's really sensitive information. Yeah. So then they can't give access to these, you know, marketing departments and these other departments and so on. And in fact, actually, uh, Uber in the past had fired employees. Yeah, Uber, uh, Uber is not famous for, <laughs> for being very good about privacy. <laughs> so, so, right, so in the past, they had fired employees who yeah. actually misused their um, access rights yeah, to yeah, yeah. look up, like, yeah, you know, yeah, God users. mode. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so, so then essentially, they're in a dilemma. So, either they just lock down the access, so then, um, then they can't use the data, their employees cannot use the data to improve the business and improve also user experience overall. Mm -hmm. Or if they give access, then they have this huge risk of privacy and data breach and, and so on. Right. So then in this case, actually, private SQL is actually a great solution for them. Ah, because I with see. the private SQL, so okay, so also let me tell you a little bit in terms of the technology for private SQL. And so private SQL, anyone here can use, right? It's exactly. So that's that, that's a technology that Oasis Labs now is yeah. commercializing. Oh, you're commercializing. That. Right. Yeah. So what it is is again for differential privacy, as I mentioned, it's um, it's a formal notion of privacy, and uh, you actually have to for each algorithm you have to develop. Uh, a pri differentially private version of the algorithm. So, for example, if you want to compute a count, if you want to compute, uh, uh, right, uh, like a, a sum or average and so on, you need to compute, you need to develop like a differentially private version of these uh, analytics. And depending on the actual data set uh, attributes, there are different uh, differential privacy mechanisms that you can actually uh, use. Uh, that's best for your privacy and utility trade-off. 
So, so, so in any case, so usually it requires a lot of expertise in differential privacy to actually use it. But of course, most data analysts, they don't really know about differential privacy. Right. And also it's difficult to, you also don't want to change the backend database to embed differential privacy mechanisms in the database because that's difficult uh, to actually deploy. You have to change the backend infrastructure. So what we have done with this private SQL is basically you can view it as a layer in between the data analysts and, uh, and the backend database. So basically ah. it sits right in front of the, data, the backend database. So when users submit queries, um, the, this SQL uh, data analytics queries, they will get automatically rewritten by our private SQL, uh, this thing there. And it will uh, automatically rewrite the SQL query into a new SQL query with differential privacy and other privacy mechanisms embedded into it. And, and then this new SQL query, we call it uh, essentially intrinsically private query, then gets executed on the backend database. And then the database will return some results and our thing layer will also do some post-processing in certain cases and then in the end return the result. So the final result in this case will be guaranteed to be differentially private. And also it can guarantee other privacy properties that um, your privacy policy um, uh, dictates as well. So then in this way, as you can see, we've changed this deployment problem, making it really, really easy. So in this case, we don't change the workflow at all. Mm -hmm. So the data analyst doesn't need to know anything about differential privacy, and we don't change the backend uh, database uh, as well. Perfect. All you do is just put this thing there uh, in front of the database, so it's really, really easy to deploy. And now, so in Uber's use case, now they can allow their analysts to use the data right. without worrying about data leakage, privacy, violation, and so on. Great. So that's just one yeah. example of uh, the uh, real-world use case. Yeah. And we have the pilots now also with the BMW and uh, also in healthcare uh, with hospitals and so on. So nice. we do hope to actually bring this uh, product uh, to Google GCP and uh, Amazon AWS nice. very soon. So we hope that more uh, companies and more uh, data analysts, data scientists, uh, actually can benefit from this. It sounds uh, this. super useful. And those were crystal clear use cases. And I bet uh, lots of our listeners and our audience members here uh, can't wait to be able to embed that kind of technology in their organization so that they can have potentially sensitive information still be used for business functions uh, in a way that's safe and secure. That sounds great. Um, so I want to turn uh, questions over to the audience in a moment. But just before we get to that, um, I want to bring up a topic that I think might particularly interest this data science audience. So you've authored many papers on deep learning and you've talked about it at length um, in uh, talks that you've given and in interviews that you've given. So um, what is the relationship between deep learning and the kinds of topics that you've already talked about today? Um, so responsible decentralized intelligence. And in particular, um, I think there's a term federated learning that um, it'd be great to introduce us to. Okay, great. Yes, yeah, so federated learning is actually another component technology um, that in privacy computing, uh, that in particular for machine learning setting, and that actually, I'll, in a second, I'll talk about this responsible data economy uh, as well. Uh, so federated learning, the goal of federated learning is, again, you want to train machine learning models, but of course, a lot of the input is sensitive. So you, again, you want to have a good way to protect users' data, but still be able to uh, train uh, these machine learning models. So the idea of federated learning is, unlike normal machine learning uh, training, for example, where users' data is collected and all sent to the central uh, server uh, to then train the machine learning models. Now, of course, in this case, as you can see, the central server now essentially sees everyone's data, right. and you really have to trust the central server not to leak your right. so, sensitive data. So it's kind of similar. So where private SQL allowed a data analyst to run queries and get summary information in a way that keeps database information private, federated learning uh, analogously allows a machine learning algorithm to train without needing to bring in private exactly, information. Exactly. That's why it's called federated learning. Um, of course, it can also be extended. We also call it decentralized machine learning in certain cases. Um, so in federated learning, 
the user's data stays on users, each user's device. They are now sent to the central server. So instead, these distributed um, devices, they would uh, essentially work together in coordination by the central server in this case, where um, only you can cause the model updates, for example, the gradient updates, is being sent to the central server, which aggregates these uh, gradient updates to train the machine learning model in iteration. And it's called federated learning because now you have this federation of different devices right. where user's data is only, uh, only stays on user's uh, device. And uh, user's data only stays on user's device. It's now sent directly to the central server. And, uh, and further extending to this actually decentralized machine learning, in this case, you don't even have the central server. You can do this purely in a peer-to-peer -peer setting or actually using some other right, uh, decentralized uh, network uh, to do this. Um, so, right, so, so speaking of this, uh, right, so the other thing I wanted to share also is that, um, so further learning, uh, and also actually uh, together with the researchers from Google and a number of, uh, actually and many other researchers, we have a, a essentially a, a survey paper on uh, further learning. It's both a survey and also talks about, uh, I, I should call the overview paper, on federal learning. That's actually, I think, the most cited paper in federal learning uh, today. Oh, really? The uh, most cited paper in federal learning? In federal learning, yeah. um, I think, right. It <laughs> uh, has many thousands of citations. And that's a good um, a reference for, uh, uh, for anyone who is interested in learning about it. It really talks about the different types of federal learning, the different uh, applications and open challenges, and so on. Um, but with that, uh, maybe I can briefly talk about, uh, so I, I talked about these different technologies, yep. uh, homomorphic encryption, um, secure multiplied computation, and differential privacy, and yep. federal learning, yep. and all these, I call them component technologies for responsible data use. So the goal is really, um, as we all know, data is a key driver of modern economy, and also it's really the lifeblood of AI machine learning. Without yeah. data, you are yeah. not going to be able to learn anything. Yeah. Um, but of course, a lot of this data is really sensitive, and going forward, the problem is only going to get worse and worse. So it's really important that as we do data analysis and machine learning, we enable this responsible data use, including uh, providing a better um, privacy and also ensuring that uh, uh, users actually get fair value or get benefits from their data and so on. Nice. So overall, this is what I call uh, leading to a responsible data economy. Yeah. And there are, uh, in my mind, so there are three key principles of a responsible data economy. Mm -hmm. One, as I mentioned already, is providing better privacy and also more importantly, providing this data rights so that users can actually um, take better control of their data uh, and, uh, and in this case also will help. So, so that's one, so this can serve as a foundation for ensuring that data is not being uh, misused. And also secondly, ensuring that data actually, uh, users get fair value, get sufficient benefits from their data. And right. the third one is how we can, you know, combine the society uh, together to ensure that uh, we do get max, uh, uh, use, max value, max yeah. value out of the data nice. to for you know the the best interests and social welfare, um, uh, right for for the whole society. Yeah. So no question, we have a data economy today, and in the future, the data will drive more and more of the economy. It's great to be thinking about these responsible aspects of it. So what can our listeners or our audience members here do? Um, uh, in order to be developing a responsible data economy going forward, I've heard about your CoLink initiative. So it sounds like that might particularly be of interest to the data scientists here um, as a decentralized platform that makes it easy to develop and deploy privacy-preserving data science and machine learning technologies and applications. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Agree. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, right, so this also actually stems from our experience working with uh, Meta. So as I mentioned, so we developed this uh, privacy-preserving um, technologies for air model fairness assessment. And, um, 
So the project has been very successful. It's rolled out uh, to the real world. And it's public now, right? Yes, it's public Co-link. now. Colink, C-O-L-I-N-K. Uh, oh, okay. So, so first, <laughs> right. So the uh, yes, uh, but before that, so the project with Manta that I mentioned earlier, yeah. also is rolled out in the real world, and it's um, ah. uh, it's really the first of its kind, uh-huh. large scale deployments of privacy technologies for air model fairness assessment. However, from that project, what we learned is. Um, actually, the time it took us to develop the algorithm uh, is actually a relatively a small fraction of the overall system because the, we need to deploy the system in the real world and this real world deployments, building the actual, in this case, distributed decentralized system, we actually have multiple nodes running to do the secure multi-party computation with different uh, entities, in this case, actually several universities participating in this as well. The, the whole system the de- de- development and deployment actually took the bulk of the time for the project. So then this got us thinking, similar to the uh, project of Private SQL, we wanted to make it really easy for analysts and uh, developers to actually use differential privacy. But then in this case, we want to make it really easy for developers to actually use uh, and deploy these type of new, I call it responsible data use technologies. So that's what we developed called the code learn and uh, the technology is called CodeLink. Um, but uh, they, uh, so the idea is we are building this decentralized data science platform where, uh, for example, the work we did with Manta, it took many, many months to actually, from when we already, after designed the algorithm, had an initial prototype of implementation of the algorithm, and the rest just took many, many months to actually develop the production system. Whereas if we had the co-learn system back then, yeah. it could have shrunk this many, many months of engineering work into maybe just like one or two weeks. Very cool. So, so really the platform, the goal is actually integrates all these technologies that we developed, secure multi-project computation um, and federal learning, and we are integrating uh, certain differential privacy, uh, the privacy SQL uh, technologies in there as well. So that's... It's super easy for developers to use any of these technologies and also deploy uh, applications in the real world. Nice. So that sounds like a great take home for people here. If they want to be incorporating uh, the kinds of decentralized uh, elements that you've described today to allow for a responsible data economy, then CoLink is a way to do that. Uh, and right. parts and, of it are available now. And um, you can go to the website colearn.studio. Uh, to learn more. Co-learn.studio, nice. Um, so uh, sitting in the front row here at ODSE West is Serge Massis, who is a researcher for the Super Data Science Podcast. And so he did a lot of the research behind many of the great questions that I asked today. Uh, so thank you very much to Serge. But then I'd like to open it up. Uh, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience. So the kind of the context here is that there might be lots of industries out there that would be interested in these kinds of technologies beyond the examples that you provide today. Uh, Don, so asset management could be an industry that would really um, benefit from the kinds of uh, decentralized intelligence technologies that you described today. And then there's a two-part question. So the first one is, do you think that companies adopting these technologies are doing it from an internal or an external motivation? And then the second thing is, what are the practical implications of using a querying tool like um, uh, Private SQL? Uh, can, like, how do you, if you just use the star in your SQL query, uh, you know, in, in normal circumstances, you could be pulling out uh, credit card numbers or social security numbers. So, uh, you know, how is the, practically the syntax different? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, these are great questions. So, uh, so first, uh, I think, uh, right, I mean, for these companies, uh, there are actually a number of reasons why now they are becoming more and more motivated using privacy technologies, both for from external and internal concerns, absolutely. And also there is more regulatory requirements today as well. Uh, for example, GDPR, CCPA, and so on. So all these uh, gives company more uh, motivation now to deploy privacy technologies, which I'm really glad to see. I think the conversation today is very different from just five years ago or even just two years ago. So uh, I, uh, and I think that's also why uh, you know, I, I really enjoy actually, you know, the conversation here is I think we do want to raise more awareness also for users um, and the society overall is to 
demands have more demands on you know your data privacy and uh, give the feedback to companies that this is important and uh, it's important for them to deploy and adopt more privacy technologies. Nice. So yeah, right, and then so, the practical question. Right. So that's number one, and number two. So it really depends on the queries. So, so in general, basically, um, the the private SQL results it will now return, for example, you know, like a specific individual's uh, records uh, with uh, their sensitive data and so on. So usually, for private SQL, it's deployed on, uh, you can call it uh, these uh, statistical queries, right. or aggregate, aggregate, uh, aggregate yeah. queries. Right. So, so in this case, it will, uh, basically, in the results uh, that's returned, so basically, it will return you differentially private uh, results. And also, you can, as I mentioned, so this query writer actually is very flexible. We, what we have done in the past is, of course, you can embed differential privacy mechanisms, but you can also embed other types of requirements. For example, in our collaboration with Uber uh, previously, they have put in certain policy requirements, certain, for example, certain columns that are sensitive. You simply just cannot even, you know, uh, write. You cannot do certain operations uh, on that. Nice. So, so, Don, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, and let's give Professor Song a hand. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. What an incredible experience to be on stage with a luminary like Professor Song in front of the engaged live audience of ODSC West filming a Super Data Science episode for you. In today's episode, Don filled us in on how responsible decentralized intelligence allows the training of compute-intensive machine learning models that can be distributed across many machines without compromising on data privacy or security. She talked about how her responsible data economy collaboration with Meta AI enables Facebook and Instagram's algorithms to be more fair without sharing sensitive information from Meta employees. She talked about how homomorphic encryption, differential privacy, and multi-party computation can work together to facilitate the vibrant, responsible data economy of the future, how large language models like GPT-3 can memorize private data such as credit card numbers and social security numbers, and then reveal these private data to people who query the model, how private SQL makes differential privacy easy to use, enabling a data analyst to access anonymous aggregated data from a database that includes private information, and she left us with her resources for data scientists to learn how to make it easy to develop and deploy privacy-preserving machine learning applications. To get those, again, you can go to colearn.studio. All right, as always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Don's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 633. That's superdatascience.com slash 633. Not just this episode number 633, but every single episode, I strive to create the best possible experience for you, and I'd love to hear how I'm doing at that. For a limited time, we have a survey up at superdatascience.com slash survey, where you can provide me with your invaluable feedback on the show. Again, our quick surveys available at superdatascience.com slash survey. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana, Mario, Natalie, Serge, Sylvia, Zara, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for producing another trailblazing episode for us today. For enabling this super team to create this free podcast for you, we are deeply grateful to our sponsors. Please consider supporting the show by checking out our sponsors links, which you can find in the show notes. And if you yourself are interested in sponsoring an episode, you can get the details on how by making your way to johncrone.com slash podcast. Last but not least, thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of the show. Until next time, my friend, keep on rocking it out there. And I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.